Well, good morning, everyone. I want to begin with a bit of a, an apology, because uh, last week I forgot something in the first service and then screwed it up in the second. So I'm going to try to make this uh, correct this time. Uh, last week I announced briefly that my wife is now back home with us after completing her placement, which is amazing. And, and if you didn't realize, my wife is becoming a midwife, and she has just completed her schooling. She has a few more exams left, and I'm really excited about this. How I announced it last week, though, I forgot to mention the schooling part, actually. I forgot to mention that she was gone for schooling. So as soon as I mentioned this, Krista came up to me afterwards, and she said to me, Andrew, you totally screwed that up. For anybody who is new, it made it sound like we've been divorced or separated for nine months. <laughs> because here's how I pitched it. I said, oh, I'm so glad she's been living in Kitchener-Waterloo for nine months. Like, now she's finally moved back home. Like, things are better again. It's like, I'm like, like, I was like, yeah, I hear it now, right? Like, I did it then. So if you're brand new, um, here's what actually has been going on in our lives, okay? In uh, 2016, we as a family moved down here to actually join you as Bethany, as our church family. And to do that, you might not have realized this, but Krista had a very like promising career in academics. She was working at the University of Waterloo. She has her Bachelor of Health Science, also her Master's of Public Health. She had to leave her entire career to come here. And then when she kind of gave all that up, she started this process of discerning what is God calling her to do. And so she started the process of becoming a midwife. We've been on this journey now. Uh, I'd say we because it is kind of a we thing, I think, at this point, um, for the last five years. So for five years. And um, she's had multiple different placements. The last one, though, as many of you know, if you're not brand new to our church, meant that Krista has been living in Kitchener-Waterloo for the last nine months. And actually, if you actually spend up, uh, kind of add up all the time in the past two years, she spent more than a year not living with us to be able to get to this place here today. But she is back. She is home. She has a few more exams. And she has a job that starts in June at Niagara Midwife. So this is all, like, this is all good things. So, so also, if you haven't met my wife, this is my wife, okay? So if you have not met her yet, yes, I am married. And is there anything else that I have screwed up in that? <laughs> Announcement thing. So many things. So many things. So many things. So, many things. Um, so if you would like Krista to have a mic uh, to be able to share with her her thoughts, um, you'll actually be able to experience this. This is kind of a funny segue. But we're leading a marriage retreat, actually. Um, we're leading a marriage retreat in April. And I share this with you because what we've experienced in the last nine months and even over the past five years of the many different ups and downs is that marriages require work, effort, right? Like intentionality. So I want to invite you, if you're married, to actually sign up uh, for this uh, course and this time together. It's going to be great. And we're going to be sharing some of the things that really have helped us to get through the past five years that have been really strange and difficult in lots of different reasons. And so we want to invite you and make you aware of that. There's a marriage retreat in April uh, for all of us. And we're going to share uh, some things. And Chris will have a mic the entire time. You get a mic the entire time. I know the church's like, wishes are finally coming true. That if some of you remember, especially during COVID, when we were filming at our house, and Krista would make comments throughout the sermon, now you're going to hear all of those live, basically, is what it's going to be. Okay? So with that, I actually want to move into our actual sermon okay, with the book of Job. Now, if you're just joining with us, we've been studying this book of Job for Lent, really looking at the, the different perspectives that are in it. And the lens we've been taking with this book is that Job is really answering and asking the question of how should you speak to God in suffering, difficulty, trials, all of that? How should you speak and relate to God? Because you might not love this, but this is just true, right? You will face trials in life, correct? They're going to come. They're going to come. 
So the question is, not if you will face them, but what do you do when you do face them? And so Job is really answering this question. How do you speak to God in struggles and trials? And I've been sharing with you that really the right way to look at the book of Job is as a play. Act one is really where things kind of get set up. We get introduced to Job and some of the testing he's going to face. Act two is where kind of the testing gets ratcheted up. And Job faces some really extreme suffering and calamity. Act three that we looked at really like three weeks ago is where we see all of these different perspectives from Job and his friends about the right ways to speak to God in suffering. Like, should you accuse him? Can you complain to him? Do you just bless him? Do you cut off communication? Do you defend God in the midst of suffering? Right? And then act four is what we want to take a look at today. Act four is where God shows up and speaks for the first time. Act five we'll take a look at next week where God gives a second speech, actually. So today we want to continue on in our series. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Job uh, 38. Okay? But before I kind of reach you God's response, I want to remind you of where Job is at. Because we might not kind of all be in the same space. I want to remind you of the kind of the headspace he's at. Okay? So in chapters 29 to 31, we have Job's what might be called his last kind of soliloquy. Right? He speaks. And he gives this long speech about where he is at. I want to read to you some of the verses there just so we get you know, rightly orientated to the space that Job is in and to some of the complaints that he brings to God and some of the, let me just put it this way, harsh words that he actually accuses God with. That's what he says, okay? I'll read this in chapter 29, verse 1. Job says, I long for the years gone by when God took care of me. I long for the years gone by when God took care of me. We can be honest in church, amen? amen. Has anyone ever said words like that before? Right, like when you're in something, that's, that's tough. And all of a sudden, it does not feel like God is there, his care, his protection. You feel on your own, where you long for maybe how it once was, and it isn't for you right now. He says, I long for the years when God took care of me, when he lit up the way before me, and I walked safely through the darkness, right? That he felt that God was protecting him and guiding him, and now all of that's gone. Listen to what he says. This is a... Oh, it's a heartache of a verse. He says, when I was in my prime, God's friendship was felt in my home. He felt close to God. He felt like there was friendship and intimacy there. But when you go through challenge and difficulty, this can disrupt all of those feelings. So he says, this is how it once was. And now he's going to move into actually accusing God and actually saying that God is cruel and even abusive. Listen to what he says next. And he doesn't hold a lot back as we've already realized. He says this. He says, God, this is in verse 19 and 22. He says, God has thrown me into the mud. I'm nothing more than dust and ashes. I cry out to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. He feels forgotten, mistreated, overlooked. You maybe have been there before. He says this. Listen how harsh this word is. He says, you have become cruel to me. You've become cruel to me. You use your power to persecute me. You throw me into the whirlwind and destroy me in the storm. Job, Job is not mincing words whatsoever. He is being clear, direct. He is accusing God of cruelty, of abuse, really, of saying, you use your power, right, to persecute me. Right? And what we know as the readers, there's this, like, dramatic irony that's going on, is that what we know is this, is Job is innocent, amen? He's innocent, He's innocent. 
Job 1 makes it incredibly clear. Job is the holiest, most perfect man of integrity and faithfulness that there is. So we know, we know that actually he's right in bringing this stuff to God. And he kind of ends, he kind of ends with this desire to have an argument with God. With this desire almost to like go into a courtroom and to like argue his case. Listen to how he puts it. These are the last few words that Job will speak in chapter 31. It says this, if only someone would listen to me. Look, I will sign my name to my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. He's calling out God, is he not? He's like, let God answer me. Yeah, come see these charges I want to bring to you, God. Let my accuser write out the charges against me. I would wear, I would face the accusation proudly. I would wear it like a crown. For I would tell him exactly what I have done. I would come before him like a prince. He's longing for like a mediator or a way to like argue with God over this because he feels like he has been treated unfairly. And Job has been treated unfairly, correct? He has. He feels this and it's true, right? And then it says this, and Job's words are ended. So kind of, comes to a close. And at this point in reading this book, if you've been reading through it with us, you've been kind of like sitting with it, there'd be all this like weightiness or like tension. Because as soon as Job starts speaking, what you want and what Job wants is for God to respond. It's for God to like answer this in some way. It's for God to open up and say, here's what's happening or whatever. And you want to know what happens in this next section? Some random dude shows up and starts talking more. That's what happens. Seriously, a guy named Elihu, who we have not heard in this text yet, just shows up and starts speaking more things. And I'm just going to cut to the chase. I'm not going to read any of it. None of it is helpful, and none of it is actually new, okay? It's just a repeat of what the other three friends did. It's like if you're walking through this, all of a sudden, you're almost just annoyed with Elihu, which I think is the entire point. That if you're reading this book, what's going to end up happening, as soon as Job's words ended and you start to move into Elihu's, you're going to be like, where is God? Why isn't he speaking? I want to get to the main point, which is actually exactly what Job is feeling. That the process of reading and engaging this book will actually put you in the place of Job. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to mimic those feelings for us. And then finally, in chapter 38, finally in chapter 38, God speaks. We've heard all these different perspectives. Job has shared his. His three friends and this random dude shows up. They share theirs too. But then we're going to hear uh, God's perspective. And so today, I want, to do something, I want to do something a little bit different. I'm going to ask you, and this might sound funny, but just stick with me. I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible to just put it aside for a moment, okay? Because um, what I want to do here today, I want to invite you not to read these words, but to actually experience them. That in Job 38 and 39, we hear a speech from God. And so in just a moment, we're going to have actually Rosemary. She's going to come forward, and she's going to share with us all of chapter 38. And I want to invite you, as she shares the word of the Lord with us, she's memorized all of it. And we're just going to hear it and experience it here today. I want to invite you not to follow along in your Bibles. I want to invite you just to listen to the word of God. I want to invite you just to experience it. That really, these words are meant to be heard and experienced and reflected upon. What I want to invite you to do specifically is to almost pretend you're a Job, right? You've called out to God. You've cried out to him. You've said, will you answer me? Will you speak to me? And then I want us to put ourselves in his place as we then hear what God responds to Job with. That's what I want to invite you to do in the next few moments as Rosemary shares with us um, Job chapter 38. Let's experience that together.
God answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this who questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I'm going to ask you some questions, and you must answer. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions? Who stretched out the surveying lines? What supports its foundations? Who laid the cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb and I clothed it in clouds and wrapped it in deep darkness? It was I that locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no further shall you come. Here, your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear or the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth bringing an end to the night's wickedness. As light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It's robed in brilliant colors. You know, light disturbs the wicked and puts a stop to the arm raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you seen and explored their depths? Where are the gates to death located? Have you seen those gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from? Where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all this, because you were born before they were ever created. And you are so very, very experienced. Mm -hmm. Have you visited the storehouses of the snow? or seen the storehouses of the hail. I've reserved them as weapons for the time of trouble, the day of battle and war. Where is the path to the source of light? Where is the home of the east wind? Who created a channel for the torrents of rain and laid out a path for the lightning. Who makes rain to fall on the barren ground in the middle of a desert where nobody lives? Who sends rain to satisfy the dry ground and make the tender grass spring up?
Does rain have a father? Who gives birth to the dew? Who is the mother of the ice? Who makes frost fall from the heaven, making water freeze into ice as hard as a rock and causing the surface of the waters to freeze? Can you direct the movement of the stars, binding the cluster of the Pallades, or loosening the cords of Orion? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons, guiding the bear and her cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? And can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you cause lightning to appear and make it strike as you direct? Who gives intuition to the heart and instinct to the mind? Who is wise enough to count all the clouds? Who can tip the water jars of heaven? When the parched ground is dry and the soil has hardened into clods. Can you stock prey for the lioness? and satisfy the young lion's appetites as he lays in his den or crouches in the thicket? Who feeds the ravens when their young cry out to God and they wander about in hunger? Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic. But can you give the answers? Can you? Can we thank Rosemary for sharing the word of the Lord with us here today? Here's the question I have for you. After experiencing that, after hearing that, pretending you're Job, Pretending you're kind of in this space. You've called out God, and he's finally answered, okay? Is that the speech you were expecting? Probably not, right? Probably not. And this is really what we want to take a look at. Rosemary rarely shared with us all of chapter 38. In chapter 39, God continues, right? The speech doesn't quite end there. God continues sharing all about all these amazing animals, okay? About like hawks and eagles and ostriches, which I could not pronounce that word in the first service, so I'm glad I got it here in the second, okay? He gives this whole example of this. The question I want to invite you to really consider is, is this really what you're expecting? And when it comes to this text, this is what we want to actually sit with here today. I want to sit with these kind of two chapters, of chapters 38 and 39. When it comes to this, there's been kind of maybe two major responses to this. I'm going to share with you both of them, okay? Both how interpreters and scholars think of this passage, and I'm going to share with you which one I kind of land with, okay? That some people, some people think here when God shows up, that God is almost, if we can put it this way, seeking to bully Job into submission. 
by sharing all of these rhetorical questions that Job has no answer to. Like, were you there when this happened? Do you understand this part? Do you understand that? Like, to almost use modern-day language, it'd be like God showing up and being like, can you explain quarks or black holes or dark matter or whatever? Right? He's almost seeking to, like, I don't know, reprimand, rebuke, or reproach Job. There are people who think that's what's going on, that God is almost in this passage being like a university professor with, like, a freshman, right? Like, trying to put him in his place. And you can hear that in the text. You can hear that in how God kind of speaks. Were you there? Do you understand this? Do you have the answers? I mean, the last thing God says is this. Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? Right? I mean, if you were Job, would you answer that statement? Like, no, right? You'd be like, "Eh, eh." you'd take a step back, right? You'd be like, ooh, perhaps I have said too much, right? Which is exactly Job's response in the very next verse. That's exactly what Job says. He says this, then Job replied to the Lord. He says, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. He like takes a step back and says, whoa, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's too much. It's too much. So some people, some interpreters think that God is seeking to put Job in his place. It's clear from the text that Job also thinks that, right? That that's how he responds. But I want to suggest to you that I'm not so sure about that. I think there is another way to understand this passage. And I want to share with you why, okay? That this idea that God here is seeking to put Job in his place, it has some problems with it. One, one of the problems is that if God is seeking to put Job in his place, what this means then is that we should be very, very careful with however we might speak to God. Right? Because God is almost saying all that Job has said up to this point is kind of off limits. So there's that kind of a problem. There's another problem, too, with this kind of more common approach or interpretation. Um, one of the problems with it is just really clear, and this is honest and true. Job kind of does have a reason to complain to God, correct? Right? Because he actually is innocent. We know this. So when he's saying this is unfair, Job is actually speaking truthfully. Amen? When he says this is unfair... He's right. Second thing, second thing, or second reason why the first kind of common interpretation maybe isn't so helpful, right? If the point of God speaking in chapters 38 and 39 is to put Job in his place, right? To kind of bully him into submission, to make sure that he knows he should be silent and speak no more, then why, why in the very next chapter does God give another long speech? Because... If the point is to bully Job into submission and to silence, God has done that in chapters 38 and 39. Because what does Job say? I'm going to speak no more. I'm going to hold my hand up. I'm sorry. I'm out. Like I did, you know, it was too much. So if the point is to get Job there, why does God then speak to him again? And that's what we're going to take a look at next week. Thirdly, another reason why I'm not so sure that we should understand this text as God trying to almost bully Job into submission. Thirdly, what we know, if you read the book of Job, is God at the end actually says who has spoken correctly and who has spoken wrongly. Anyone want to take a guess who God says has spoken correctly? Job. He actually says, my servant Job has spoken faithfully and truthfully. He says the people who have spoken wrongly are all the friends, are those three guys and then the other guy who shows up. So God actually says that Job has spoken rightly. So I'm not so sure here that God's intention is to put Job in his place. I actually think what God is doing I actually think what God is doing is God is answering Job's actual 
question, and calling. Right? That Job has called out, actually, God, and said, I want to argue with it, with you. And then what does God do? He shows up and argues with Job. God, that Job has actually asked for this. And I think what God is doing in this passage, actually, in many ways, I'm going to show you from the text. I think he's trying to shift Job's perspective. I think he's trying to actually help him to see things differently. I think that actually what God wants to do is enter into a conversation, dialogue, debate, even argument with Job. Job has brought up some pretty deep things, so now God's going to bring up his things. And I want to share with you three things I think that God does in this text and how he shifts Job in three ways, or he's trying to. How he moves Job from an idea of karma to complexity, how he moves Job from an idea of self-focus to like the wider world, and how he moves Job from the idea of micromanagement to empowering. I want to show you from the text, okay? That first, what I think God is seeking to do is to move Job from this idea of karma to complexity. And here's what I mean by karma. That it seems like Job, and this is true in the text, it seems like Job has this idea of like simplistic karma. That if you do good, you should only have and experience good things, right? Or if you do bad, you're going to experience bad things. Now, in a general sense, this is absolutely true, okay? If you are a jerk to everyone, you will experience bad things in life, correct? Right? Do you want to know the theological way to put this? Sin has consequences, amen? amen? It does. You are an evil, jerky person. There will be difficulty things that happen to you, okay? I think it's also true, we can say as a general principle, that if you're good, kind, compassionate, you will likely experience good, kind, and compassion as well, okay? Proverbs, Proverbs actually speaks of this directly. Proverbs says this, if you search for good, you will find favor. But if you search for evil, it will find you, right? That's the idea. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Proverbs is teaching principles, okay? And this is a principle to live by. There is a problem when we turn principles into promises and guarantees. That's a problem. And it seems like both Job and his friends are living under this idea of guarantees, that if you do good, you are guaranteed good all the time. And if you do bad, you are guaranteed bad all the time. But this is just true. Our world is way more complex than that, amen? It is. But Job and his friends are under this impression. So for example, Job's friends say that Job, because bad is happening to you, you must deserve this. And Job is saying, but no, I did good, so I deserve something else. They are both expecting that they will only and always experience what they deserve. But that's just not true. Job even says this in chapter 30, 26, showing this idea. He says, so I looked for good, but evil came instead. Right? He was expecting good because he's been good. Or I waited for the light, but darkness fell. But here in the speech, I think what God is inviting Job into is to realize that the world is much bigger and more complex than simple cause and effect. So God says things Right? Like, have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you explored the springs and the seas come, where the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you even know where the gates of death are located? Have you even seen the gates of utter gloom? That what God is seeking to do is to move Job from this idea that the world is simple and easy and straightforward to it's much more wild, big, and complex than he expected. We actually get at this quite clearly where God says this. He says this, do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Because Job does think he knows the laws of the universe, that if you do good, good must happen. God's actually trying to shift Job from this idea of karma that the world is much more complex than Job has realized. 
The second thing that I think that God is seeking to do, I think he's seeking to shift Job from focusing on himself to seeing a bigger picture of things. Because this is just true, it is natural, and it is normal, okay? When you go through suffering, when you go through difficulty, do you want to know what ends up happening? Your focus often narrows to yourself and what you are going through. Has anyone experienced that before? Right? I think that's what's happening to Job. His focus is actually narrowing just on him. And part of his complaint with God is, God, you're not paying attention. God, you're not doing the right things. God, you don't even see me at all. And so then do you want to know what God does in response? He takes Job in chapter 39 through literally a tour of creation. He starts talking about like stallions and hawks and like wild goats. I'll read to you a few verses. Honestly, it's, it's almost shocking. Listen to what God says. He says this to Job. Do you know when the wild goats give birth? Do you think Job was expecting that question when he called out God? Like not at all, right? But what's God doing here? He's trying to show Job that God is paying attention to all sorts of things that Job has never even considered, right? Do you know when the wild goats give birth? Have you watched the deer as the deer are born in the wild? Do you know how many months they carry their young? Are you aware of the time of their delivery, right? They crouch down to give birth to their young. They deliver their offspring. Their young grow up in open fields and they leave home and never return. Like God talks about all these amazing animals like wild horses, hawks, eagles, all sorts of things. And I think what he's seeking to do is, as I said, to almost decenter Job a little bit, to help him to realize that, yes, his concerns are valid, but they're also in so many ways incomplete. There's so much more going on in the world, and that God is paying attention to all of it. God is paying attention to all of it. So I think he's trying to shift some of his focus from himself to the wider world. The last thing that I think that God is doing in these speeches in chapters 38 and 39 is he's seeking to help Job to realize that God does not micromanage the universe, God empowers. Okay? That God does not micromanage things, God empowers. Okay? And you can see this really clearly in chapter 39, that God loves to give his creatures, and I'm speaking here of all of creation, right? freedom, agency, and responsibility. Listen to some of the things that he says. He says this, who gives the wild donkey, which is an amazing phrase, okay? who gives the wild donkey its freedom, right? Because God gives freedom. God gives empowering. Who gives the wild donkey its freedom? Who untied its ropes? I've placed it in the wilderness. Its home is in the wasteland. It hates the noise of the city and has no driver to shout at it. The mountains are its pasture land where it searches for every blade of grass. Or he talks about the strength of horses and stallions. He says, have you, have you given the horse its strength, right? That God gives each of his creatures strengths, abilities, skills, freedom, all of that sort of thing. Agency, did you give it the ability to leap like a locust? Its majestic snorting is terrifying, right? That's a great line. Its majestic snorting is terrifying. It says this, it paws the earth and rejoices in its strength when it charges out into battle. It laughs at fear and is unafraid. It does not run from the sword. And what God, I think, really reveals in chapter 39 is that he is absolutely, unquestionably in charge of creation, but not in a top-down micromanaging way. He gives freedom to the wild donkey, strength to the stallion. He actually says he gives defiance to the wild ox, which some of you might be like, I think he's also given that to my teenage you know, son or daughter or whatever, right? That he empowers, he empowers. He does not micromanage. If you read this passage carefully, and I want to encourage you to do that this week, actually. If you read it, what you cannot miss is that God pays attention to creation. God cares for creation. God, though, does not control creation. He does not exercise precise control and micromanagement. 
Or to use like a more modern day example, okay? This is, I think sometimes we think of God like this and it's just wrong, okay? God is not some like middle level incompetent bureaucrat who needs to control all of his subordinates, okay? That is not what's going on. Instead, God in the beauty of creation, he delights, he delights in giving freedom, agency, power, and strength to the world. So what does this text mean for us today? Chapters 38 and 39. Well, as I said, there are, there are many different ways to interpret this. Um, but two of the main kind of ways is some people see it really as God being uh, forceful and actually putting Job's arrogant posture in place. Other people, myself included, think that something else is going on. That God is actually challenging Job. God is entering into the debate with Job. But he's doing this in such a way to actually to shift and to change Job. To help him to see the world in a different way moving it from karma to complexity, from focusing on himself to the wider world, and from micromanaging to freedom. The question I have for you today is just this, is what do you think? Because honestly, honestly, Lent is all about studying and wrestling and reflecting on scripture personally. I want to invite you to think through what is it that you think? Because there are many different ways to understand this speech. So what I want to invite you to do is we've heard all of chapter 38 today and portions of chapter 39 I want to invite you to read it this week and to think through, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for you? What do you hear in this? And as you're reflecting on scripture this week, I want to give you one small bit of guidance with it, okay? And here's my guidance with it, because this is so obvious if you think about it. It's such good news for us if you're in difficulty or challenge. What is absolutely obvious in these speeches and should not be overlooked whatsoever is that God cares for Job, that God is interested in Job, and that God actually wants to have a conversation with Job. How do you think I know this? Because he shows up, amen? Because there's a speech there at all. The fact that God shows up to Job when he is asked it, when he is in difficulty, when he is in challenge, means that God is interested, caring, and wants to speak to Job. Now, I think God does want to challenge some things within Job. I do think there is some convictions of things that go within Job. But what you cannot miss is that God shows up and speaks to him. And honestly, honestly, if you have ever been in suffering or difficulty, is this not what you want? For God to actually speak? For him to actually show up? And what I want to invite you to do this week, what I want to invite you to do this week is I want to invite you not only to read these words, but to pay attention for God speaking in your life this week. That's my challenge for you. To read these words of chapter 38 and 39, but to pay attention for God actually speaking to you this week. Because here's just what I think. Okay? I think that whenever God is speaking, we need to be listening. Amen? Amen. Whenever God is speaking, we need to be listening. And sometimes God does show up with a word of rebuke, a word of challenge. Sometimes it's a word of comfort. Sometimes it's a word of direction. What I want to say to you is whatever God is speaking to you, you need to be listening to that. You need to be listening to that. And I think what God does in this passage is he shows up to Job to speak in times of trial, tribulation, and difficulty. And I want to invite you to think through, what might God be saying to you today? So what's my challenge? It's just simple today. It's to reflect on God's words in Job and to listen for God speaking in your life. Because I don't know about you, but I need God to speak to me. I need to hear him. If I'm going to follow him, I need to hear him. And I need to have no parameters on what it is that he might say. I am telling you, Job was not expecting a speech on ostriches when he called out God. But whatever it is that God says, we need to listen to. So I want to invite you, I want to invite you this week to know two things. One, that God does show up and speaks in times of trials, tribulations, and difficulty. And that two, 
Our job is to reflect on God's words and to actually listen for him speaking in our lives. And that's what I want to invite you to do this week. And then next week, we're going to wrap all this up together. We're going to see the last speech of God. And we're going to try to put all this together and actually to answer that question, how should we speak to God in difficulty? And we'll see all of that next week. So with that, would you join with me in prayer here this morning? God, I ask, wherever we might be at here today, I ask that we hear you speaking to us. I ask that we see and sense you. Lord, if you have a word of challenge, of comfort, of conviction, whatever it might be, I pray, God, would we hear it and would we be able to respond to you? God, I'm so grateful for the fact that you did show up to Job and to speak. So might you do that for us as well? Might we hear you? Might we know you? And might we follow you? And we pray this all in the wonderful name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.